All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Head over to iTunes and leave us some reviews. We like seeing those. And be sure and subscribe to this podcast. That way you never miss an episode. Download straight to your phone. No worries there. And if you put Andy as an idiot in the iTunes reviews, I'll give you a cap. I'll, I'll take one lucky guy and I'll take draw a cap the next two weeks. Isn't that? What a nice guy. Nice guy, Jeff. You're just a man of the people. I know. Me and uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. All right. This podcast is brought to you by Die Bomb Industries. If you want die bombs... You better order them pretty dang if fast. If you want some die bombs for a spread this this season, 2019, 2020 season, you better get on the ball. Go to DieBombIndustries.com and get what you want and get it in a hurry because guys are ordering a shitload of them. A shitload, yes. Go to DieBombIndustries.com. They're the best investment that you can make in 2019. Can't beat them. DieBombIndustries.com. We're also brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. Bismuth is back in style. Brandon's changing the game. Everybody's doing Bismuth now because Brandon made it cool again. Boss Shot Shells only takes one. Copper plating they're doing now. All their orders are coming copper plated. Holds a tighter pattern. So Boss Shot Shells only takes one. Not having to shoot a whole bunch of them. To, no more crippled birds. That's a big thing. BossShotShells.com. All made in America. Go to them. Get what you need for the season. We're also brought to you by Lucky Duck. You can't field hunt without spinners. You need a lot of spinners. LuckyDuck.com, and you can get whatever you need for this coming season. Varmint hunting, dog dog kennel coming out. Got a dog kennel. They've also got a new blind. Yes. The two-by-four blind can hold four people, or what we're going to do (laughs) when we've got a pain-in-the-ass client that we don't want to sit with, we're just going to say, oh, this blind can only hold two people. Sorry. Collapse it down to two. It's just going to be, I don't know, me and Blake. Might so I guess able. the guy that's listening to this at Hunts with is like, well, we must be them assholes because we're over here. They're by themselves over there. Well, should have done better that. You know, should have made a better impression at dinner the night before. <laughs> what an ass. <laughs> but, yeah, they can hold two people or four people. So if you've got, uh, if it's just you and a buddy, What's, you don't have a whole lot what of What about extra. if it's three fat guys? <laughs> I don't know. We, we got one sitting outside. We're going to have to go put it up and. See how many it holds, but yeah. So they've got blinds, they've got dog kennels, they got it all. They've got it all. Spinners galore. Get the waterproof spinners with the remotes. You will not regret. If that If you're gonna investment. field hunt, put out at least four to six spinners. At least you'll be happy you did it. Then it's another. It's just like your silhouettes, just like your dive bombs. If you're gonna put something out, put out enough that's gonna make game changer. Four to six spinners will game changer for you. LuckyDuck.com. This podcast is also brought to you by 737, direct to consumer, no more big box stores, all made in America. Made in Oklahoma. Made in Oklahoma. Blown by this fat guy in Texas. Every duck hunt I blew my call on last year is very successful. So use the 737 old number one, just like number one does. The three duck hunts that you went on were very good. Went on six of them. We shot at least 30 birds every time but one, and you didn't shoot very good. How would That's, you know? My my kill per average guiding this year was better than yours. I take full credit as being the guide on that last ton of the season. Hmm. And we would have shot more if y'all had let me call the shot. We couldn't have shot more. We were done on pintails. We'd have shot more mallards though. We fucked up one time, but I don't want to bring that up on the air and embarrass you. Yeah. That's seven thirty seven duckcalls.com. We're also brought to you by Sea Light LEDs. Can't beat them. No more reason to be fiddling around in the dark. Light up the sky, see what you're doing, set up that perfect decoy spread. Because let's face it, when it's dark outside, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. 
You're just throwing decoys down willy-nilly. ZLightLEDs.com can alleviate that problem. Stick them on your trailer. Stick them on your truck. Stick them on your truck and you can see the, the critters in the ditches. Yeah, that's important here in Texas. Sealight LEDs, you, they're, they're the best LED lights that you can get. Big light bars, I'm a fan. Trust me, after doing it the wrong way for so many years and then finally having some sea lights on my trailer, wish I'd have done it a long time ago. SealightLEDs.com. We're also brought to you by William Chris Vineyards. Texas wine, all grown in Texas. Chris is a great client of ours. Makes a great wine. You can go get them at HEB, Whole Foods, Central Market, all those places. All the, all the hoity-toity places, as you all like to say. All of those places. Um, you know, if you're trying to impress somebody, get a William Chris wine. They will not leave disappointed. You can go to williamchriswines.com, and I believe they'll even ship you the wine. So you don't even have to leave your underwear to get drunk. And this show is also brought to you by Athlon Optics, also a U.S. made. Athlon Optics is a proud U.S. sports optic product company devoted to designing and delivering superior quality optic products and outdoor accessories at a competitive price to you, the consumer. Athlon has strong engineering design capability, strategic alliances with quality manufacturers, and a streamlined, fully integrated supply chain. Whether you're shooting prairie dogs or scouting those geese or ducks the night before, Athlon Optics has a product that you need. So go to athlonoptics.com, get your binoculars, get your scopes. They've also got red dot sights. They got it all. If you need to look through it so you can shoot something or find something, Athlon Optics is the way to go. Last but not least, Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. Home of the Big Honker Lodge and the Big Honker Podcast. We are not far away from hunting season now. Five weeks. Not long at all. Dove season will be here. Party time. Looking forward to it. Stanfieldhunting.com. If you've sent an email recently, our website's under construction, so if you have sent an email recently, you can just call the office, 940-658-3172. Email should what, be fixed. I mean, what, what, do you have any dates, really? I mean, what dates stand out that we can give these people? I've got some dates late November. I've got some early All December, midweeks. Any, any weekends? I've got a couple of weekends left, not a bunch. i got great teal hunts, though. If you want to shoot, shoot some teal in September, come out here. We can do a dove teal combo. That would be fun. Lots of guns. Should be, it should be a great year. I mean, we've got tons of water. We've got food. We've got some teal here already. So that's why come out and do a t- teal-dove combo in September. 940-658-3172. Okay, on this episode of the podcast, we're joined by treasure hunter Bill Black. He, uh, he goes off the, off the coast and uh, explores these uh, wreck sites. And, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating fascinating lifestyle that he leads but i mean just just some of the stories and some of the things that he's found and some of the things that he knows uh is out there in the ocean it's just it's an incredible podcast we're so thankful that he talked to us and uh anyway here is bill black
Here we go. Three, two, one. Boom, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver. And on the line today, we have something completely different than what we've done before. We have got a treasure hunter from Sebastian, Florida, Mr. Bill Black. How are you doing, sir? Good. Thank you very much. I hope everybody's having a good day. Okay, my question, Bill, before I get into this treasure hunting deal, you went to Altoona Midway High School. Is that correct? I did, with some of your relatives, I suspect. My dad graduated for Altoona Midway High School <laughs> in 1962. Yes. A little before my time, I was in second grade. Did uh, did you grow up in Buffalo or a little town right there? Uh, we lived between uh, Altoona Midway and Chanute. Okay. Um, so five miles. You probably, nobody else will, but you probably remember where Lenny's gas station was. Yes, my dad lived there at one time. Mind it. Sure do, by the light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we lived five and a half miles east of there on a Greyhound farm. On a greyhound farm. I wish my dad was here today. He'd be, he'd love to hear this. Now, did my uncle Steve go to school with you? Yeah, he was a year younger. Married the prettiest girl in my class. My aunt Cheryl. She is a good looking That's lady her. and a nice lady. Oh, just wonderful family. I mean, and your aunt Susan and older aunt Barbara. Yep, Barbara and nope. Cindy. Yeah, it's Barbara, Cindy, and Susan. Right? Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah. At, uh, and I've got, <clears throat> I was born in Florida, so I've just, uh, we moved up there, bought a Greyhound farm when I was two, and they abducted me, <laughs> took me to Kansas, and uh, 48 years later, I finally escaped and uh, moved back to Florida, but that part of Kansas is just beautiful, it's wonderful people, um, it's just, I've, I worked outside raising greyhounds and horses and a few cattle and uh, running some gas wells. And it's just so damn cold in the winter. <laughs> I don't have that problem here. Now, where is Sebastian at exactly? Um, roughly 90 miles southeast of the Orlando airport, right on the ocean. Um, it's actually on the Indian River Lagoon. The, uh, which is one of the largest estuaries in the world. Um, lots of extremely good fishing, and right offshore, or right off four miles from my house, is the Sebastian Inlet, which is the one of the four places that the Indian River Lagoon <coughs> is uh, communicates with the ocean. And <coughs> excuse me, the uh, it's possibly. The most, both the most dangerous inlet and one of the most productive inlets, uh, in, on the East Coast. There's a, we've had everything from, uh, from glass minnows, big schools of glass minnows to, uh, northern right, right whales in the inlet. And that, uh, 18 foot shark, uh, I think it was Catherine, one of those big sharks that Osearch, uh, tagged came swimming in the inlet, made a turn and, and left us, thank God. Uh, I don't fear sharks, but I prefer not to encounter anything that big. <laughs> you and me both, no, no. especially in their territory. <laughs> yeah. So, although I suspect that you could feel them coming like a freighter. Ooh, it'd be uh, a bad feeling. Know, 
Yeah, <laughs> even if you feel it, what are you going to do, though? Mm. Prepare for impact? Well, <clears throat> they it's very, 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 very rare that a shark bites somebody because they're hungry. Because the way to, you can, I can back that up is they don't keep chewing. Right. Uh, they come in, they bite you, they say, ah, ew, that's not right. Mm-hmm. And they swim off. Um, you know, we've had, uh, I have friends, Steve uh, Maldonado, who runs Treasure Coast Dive Charters, and uh, some of his friends are freedivers. And they, uh, they chum up bull sharks. And with the bull sharks come the cobia, which is uh, also known as a ling, auto name, but uh, one of the best eating fish there is, and they bring a good price at the fish house. So they dump chum in the water until they get a bunch of cobia, or a bunch of bull sharks, and the cobia come with the bull sharks for whatever reason. So two guys go down, both of them armed with spear guns. One guy shoots the cobia. One guy defends his buddy. Oh, um, hell no. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little intense. A uh, friend of mine had moved away for a year. He came back last week. Uh, they took him out. They were in, I think, 80 foot of water or 90 foot of water. <clears throat> and uh, Danny said, oh, I'd forgotten how much I don't like that. North Carolina, I mean, he, he loves to dive and loves to spearfish, but that uh, chumming up cobia with the bull sharks is another deal. The, one of the more odd things about it, I suspect, is that if you take an empty water bottle and <clears throat> twist it to make that crunching sound, mm-hmm. it makes those bull sharks crazy because it sounds like uh, like they're uh, something's getting chewed up. I mean, and yeah. uh, so they drop their little fins and crank up to a pretty good speed. Um, and you can, you know, once you've watched them for a while, you can really get an idea of what they look like when they're angry enough to come in and try to take your fish. Um, one of the issues that we have here, and I know this is way off track, but one of the issues we have a lot of the guys in South Florida, is spearfishing has gotten to be pretty popular. And the sharks on some of those inexperienced guys are uh, scaring them off their fish, taking their fish. And they learned to come to the sound of the gun going off. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're <clears throat> there by yourself, you and a 20-pound you know, grouper, and pull the trigger and makes that noise and uh you know there's the there's also the added activity of of a fish quiver but they uh, they certainly even if you miss the, they certainly come to the gun there's no and way Mm-mm. it's pretty intense we, you know people hunt bears um bears don't hunt people most of the time but well, um you just put yourself at such a handicap being underwater, I think. You can't hear? You can't smell? I mean. No, no. That, uh, and they don't make any noise. I've had them swim past me from the back. Oof, shit. Kind of look over your, peek out the side of your mask. Because, you know, you're pretty tunnel vision with a dive mask on anyway. And a free dive mask, 
they use what's called a low volume mask, so you don't it doesn't have much to squeeze in when you get down eighty or ninety feet. I do not do that, but uh, that's what they do, and uh, they. Uh, so you're really tunnel vision. You can only see right in front of your face. Uh, that's why they take, sometimes they'll have two guys uh, guarding and one guy pulling the fish in. Uh, and those, she, she's got some, a good bit of footage on YouTube. Um, if any, if anybody wants to kind of get a look at what, what this is like, there's, uh, if you, you, you Google or, uh, Go on YouTube and uh, Google something, you know, or search for something like uh, Drifting the Sebastian Inlet. There's some friends of mine that did a video of uh, on an incoming tide with real clear water. They drifted the whole half mile, particularly around the bridge with the three or 400 pounds of live groupers underneath it. It's pretty cool. That's interesting. Um, now, let's jump into the treasure hunting. Because sure. nobody knows nothing about treasure hunting except treasure hunters. How how do you, how how does this work? Do do you have to do you do you go international waters? Do you do it in state waters? I mean, do do people buy into it as an investment? How how does all this work? Well, in our particular area, um, we are subcontractors with a company called Seventeen Fifteen Fleet Queens Jewels, and that is an outgrowth or it's, it's an iteration of the fishers. It started off as Kip Wagner and real eight, uh, back in the sixties, Kip was the first one to look at these, uh, wrecks and actually understand their potential. Um, they pulled up millions or ten hundreds of thousands of coins, uh, back in the sixties. Of course, they weren't worth nearly what they are now, but they were still valuable. Um, bronze cannons and, uh, rosaries and, uh, they found, uh, Rex Stalker found the captain, it's captain general of the fleet's, uh, personal, uh, whistle badge of office, uh, on the beach when he was 17, 18 years, 16 or 17 years old. Um, Rex is still alive. He's the last of that crew that's uh, still with us but he was also the youngest. Um, but <clears throat> so Wagner's had it. Then Mel Fisher came in from uh, California and partnered with him for a year. Eventually Kip got tired of it. Uh, Kip and his partners, they sold uh, out to uh, Mel and his family. Mel kept it until 2010. Then it, uh, became Queen's Jewels with some different owners. but So we get a subcontract for with Queen's Jewels that uh, entitles us to hunt anywhere between Sebastian Inlet. Um, it's all a series of leases with the state, uh, the Department of Environmental Protection, and the Army Corps of Engineers. But there are scattered <coughs> leases with shipwrecks for about 50 miles. So an average guy um, can't just go dive on it? Oh, you can go look, but you can't go in the water with a metal detector. Um, that, uh, the stand here's, the, you know, it's, it's not us 
particularly this is a state law, um, that you can't go in on these wreck sites with a metal detector because the state gets 20%, up to 20% of everything that we find. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> the standard subcontract most of the world where there is that this is done, which is just a few hundred people, um, is uh, the state gets a certain amount. They, you know, in, in this our particular instance, it's 20%. And if you're a sub, <clears throat> you end, end up getting half of what's returned to the company that you found. Um, and it sounds like a pretty steep bite, but in order to keep these leases alive, Mel Fisher went to the Supreme Court, I believe, seven times, bite them, because they didn't want, even though he had, they had the admiralty arrest and to all these wrecks, the, uh, the feds wanted to take it. Um, <clears throat> they were going to send their now, own people in and, and excavate <clears throat> it that way? Oddly enough, you know, you've, you've touched on a really interesting point. <clears throat> and this is the same in every part of the world. Um, I've got, you know, Alex Mirabal worked in Mozambique, uh, all over the Indian Ocean. He was, he's Cuban. He worked uh, for a Canadian company that contracted with Cuba to salvage wrecks on the north coast of Cuba. Uh, Mexico, he's in all Ecuador, he's been all over the world. <clears throat> and they run the treasure hunters off, say, no, you can't do anything, you can't salvage these leases or these wrecks, but they don't do anything with them. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, and it's maddening. Uh, in the Bahamas, for instance, um, I could probably put you on hundred treasure wrecks um, through people I know, and I'm not saying I have knowledge of that many, but I I know people that, you know, one friend of mine that, that was a uh, lobster diver uh, professional for 35 years, he knows I think he's got something like 50 wrecks. Um, most of them are, have been untouched. The Maravilla on the uh, northwestern corner of the Bahama, Little Bahama Bank, probably still holding a hundred million. Uh, I would guess that <clears throat> over a ten-year period, if the Bahamas would allow shipwreck salvers to go in there and do a, an archaeologically sound job of of recovering treasure <clears throat> with a you know 50-50 split on the uh, coinage and the state gets all the interest in the the Bahamas gets all the interesting uh, artifacts you know the the shipboard life stuff that they like so much <clears throat> I would guess that the Bahamas would have their national debt paid off in less than five years at Fifty percent. Jesus. And they could <clears throat> they could take all of their all of those artifacts, put them on an i on in a museum in the on the inhabited island closest to the to the shipwreck and 
you know, it's pretty tough to make a living over there. It's 445,000 people spread over about 20 inhabited islands. Um, it's rough. But, you know, tourism is their biggest product. If they had something else to entice people to some of those smaller family islands, they could improve lives of their people. Uh, and that's supposed to be sort of the purview of government. Yeah. Um, uh, Belize, Honduras, <clears throat> particularly, uh, the north coast of Venezuela is littered with wrecks. Now, the the north coast of uh, the Dominican Republic, uh, there the fifteen o two fleet of the guy that had Columbus. Christopher Columbus jailed in Spain. Uh, Columbus came rolling in. He got out of jail and came rolling back to Santa Domingo. Uh, his arch enemy, and I believe that was one of the Ubias, uh, was getting a fleet ready to go. 30 ships taking treasure back to, to uh, Spain. And Columbus, had just, you know, he just came in. He said, Anderson, I'm paraphrasing, but he warned them of of the sea conditions because it was big, long period glassy swells. And Columbus had been there before. He knew that that meant something big was out there. Mm-hmm. Wait. So Ubilla, you know, or Ubia, he uh, basically gave him the one finger salute because <laughs> they weren't friends and headed off. Lost all but one, I believe one ship made it out of that storm. Wow. Um, it was, and this was all uh, gold and silver that they had mined off of uh, Santa De- off of the Hispaniola. And none of it that I know of has ever been found. And I've got friends that are, that uh, salvaged down there for years. Okay. Now here's what, ha- here's the truth of what happens though. <clears throat> you, go down to one of these small countries where the government is not constrained by as many laws and as many watchful eyes as ours is. They're not real fond of the, of the gringos. Mm -hmm. And once you get down there, you do all your work. Uh, And the Dominican Republic, several companies in the United States worked there for three years they were supposed to have a division of treasure every six months. They never had one. They never split the treasure. Oh. There was a couple of couple of times when uh, they, you know, they let a few coins out to the to companies, but that's just a couple of times. Then the government changed, as it often does, and their governments are as radically different from administration to administration as ours was when we went from uh, Obama to Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, just complete gear shift. Um, and everything that the first of the guy before did was bad. Uh, in this case, they changed the uh, Constitution to read that they could, you know, the government couldn't have anything to do with treasure hunters. And they used that as a uh, reason to completely ignore their contractual obligations. They never had a division. They kept everything. 
And now everything on this particular uh, division was a whole lot of us, uh, stuff. That, uh, two friends of mine, Billy Rawson and Andrew Tidball, Edward was here for a week the other day. Billy, if, if Jeff might remember this, uh, I raised a friend of mine from the Dominica, this Billy Rawson, got, got bladder cancer last winter, and uh, or he had it. And we raised about 20000 in Gosco's Brought him over and got his health back to normal and sitting back. Um, he was here for seven weeks. We thought it'd take two. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I've, <laughs> I shuffled him from friend to friend at his down on, on our Bertram for a couple of weeks. And uh, he, uh, he had quite a time, but he seven weeks and he was uh, no longer a cancer patient, so we were all pretty happy. That's, yeah, that's, that's very good. good. Uh, so anyway, he uh, he and Andrew Tidball three or four years ago found four three real coins that had no dates on them, but three reals were only made for about three or four years in roughly 1540. Wow! And they they realized that apparently realized that there was not a big demand for three real coins and called them back in. These guys found four of them, and there's only 40 found that are still existent in the world. What's that um, worth? Well, the last one I saw that sold at Daniel Sedwick's auction, if you ever want to look at a lot of treasure, it's Daniel F. Sedwick coins. Um, he, and, he does a great job of auctioning. The last one I saw, uh, which was about two auctions ago, was went for seventy thousand. Wow! Um, so, you know they and those nobody's seen any of those four coins since they went to the government. Um, that you know I don't in Rio San Juan where Billy lives, uh, they don't have enough diesel to run the generator twelve hours a day, much less twenty four. Mm -hmm. And uh, last time we discussed it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, they were down to three hours of electric power a day, and it was becoming, uh, it was starting to make the citizens mad, and they were burning tires in the street to protest. And they're sitting on billions of dollars of treasure right off the coast. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and these, so these, these, these countries closed the door to legitimate treasure hunters. Yep. Um, and then they don't do anything. There's there's maybe four or five, six uh, shipwreck salvage archaeology projects that I know of in the world. Um, now, there's some places where, you know, they find a, a ship like, the, uh, like that one up in it was Sweden. Uh, the ship basically sank at the dock, but the dock in one of those fjords is like 800, 900 feet deep. So you get to the bottom of it, it's just almost freezing. The yeah. ship, the ship sank in the, well, or what, five, six hundred years ago. And it was perfect. They went down and brought it back up and restored it. Um, that kind of thing. You know, knock yourselves out, guys. These are real live archaeology projects. When 
when you're talking about ships that were beaten to pieces on a on a windward shore, uh, like the 1750 fleet out here, 11 ships went down, killed a thousand people in 1750, dumped the entire production of the Mexican and North and South American uh, coin and silver markets uh, out on the beaches of Florida and nearly uh, caused a uh, change in, uh, in the uh, structure in Europe. I mean, they went, all of a sudden Spain was really broke and they borrowed a lot of money to fight a lot of wars. And King was counting on this big shipment from, from Mexico to never get there. Uh, Wow. Let's talk about this as, as in today's standards. So me and okay. Andy, me and Andy go to Florida sure. and, and we're, and we're, we're divers, which neither one of us are. And after no. your shark talk, talk, uh, talk, I don't think we're either going to be, but we wanted to do that. <laughs> we took our, we, we rented a Boston whaler and we drove out. How deep is the water we're talking here where these shipwrecks are? Well, we found 44 coins the other day, 45. Um, and we were in eight feet of water. Okay. But we dug, we excavated eight feet of sand to find the coin. Well, That's it, a hell of a metal detector. Yeah. But let's, <laughs> let's say me and Andy go do that. We're on our own and we do uh, this. And we're free diving and we find some coins. Yes, sir. Because I, I watch these shows, these treasure hunting shows, and it always looks like someone's looking over their shoulder for someone to come rob them at gunpoint. What are, <laughs> how are we going to set, let, let's say we find a couple of coins. The coins y'all found the other day, what, what are coins like that worth right now? Thousand bucks a piece, ten thousand? Um everywhere from two hundred. Uh there's a sixteen seventeen Segovia mint. Uh I think you probably saw it that big round gold. Yes. Uh that's a Segovia mint, uh eight real, uh that's clumped together with three eight uh, real coin, cob coin. So it's one milled coin connected the three cob coins which were just banged out of a out of a sheet of a of silver cut with a cut out with a chisel and then they slapped a die on both sides of the make of the coin. So it's I I'm thinking that coin's worth ten thousand ish. Okay. Okay, let's say um, let's say me and Andy find that coin and then we want to okay. we want to sell that son of a bitch. How do you go about doing that where, without telling anybody where you got the coin from? Is it possible? Well, oh, it, you know, there's all sorts of black market coin dealers. Um, <clears throat> well, let me let me catch it a different way, in a way that I can say it, not appear to be disingenuous nor encouraging somebody to <laughs> commit acts of piracy. Okay. Say you take your metal detectors and you're walking along the beach. That that was the example I was going to use. And you find a dime. You put that dime in your pocket because finders keepers. You're going down the beach a little farther and you find a 14 karat gold ring from 1713. Um, it'll be about the size of your youngest granddaughter's little finger because those Spanish people were little folks. Um, you can put put that in your pocket. If you go down the beach to uh, you know, after a big storm and find a 
1708 Mexico Mint Royal worth $650,000. You put that part in your pocket and keep walking. Now, if you were to take 21 steps to the east and put your feet in the water, everything in that area is is deemed to be the property of the state of Florida. Right. But if you're on the beach, it's legal. Legally, you cannot take anything out of the ocean uh, out of those wreck sites. Now, if that were to happen, I would I would suggest that you put it in your pocket and call me and tell me where you found it. <laughs> Up on the beach. <laughs> no, no, just call me and tell me where you found it in the ocean, and I promise you I will be there as soon as I can get there with a boat, with a blower, and we'll see if there's some more. So how uh, long does it take you to move eight feet of sand? About 20 minutes. Oh, wow. Damn. What we do, what we, do <clears throat> the, we use a prop wash diverter. Um, it's a, we've got a 26-foot boat with a 300-horse Cummins in it um, and a pretty good-sized propeller. Over that propeller, there is a 90-degree elbow made out of quarter-inch aluminum. Um, it's on a frame. We can lift it up into an upright position or lower it down. When you lower it down, it cages and captures the prop wash from the propeller and turns it. Right now we've got it set up so it turns that about 70 degrees. So <clears throat> you, the, the standard one runs a full 90 degree uh, turn. What that does is it takes every bit of water that you would be moving, that you move with that prop at say, you know, if you're happen to be blowing it to 1200 RPM, which on our boat would be about eight knots, you're pushing eight knots of water, you know, and it, enough, enough water that will move a 10,000 pound boat eight, so that'd be a nine point something, 9.2 miles an hour. You're pushing that down into the bottom. It doesn't tear anything up. It just moves the sand out right. of the way. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> if you, and I, I'm not going to bore you with the calculations, but it's a, yeah, it's like 50,000 gallons of water, 50,000 pounds of water a minute or 50,000 gallons. It's a huge amount. You could not, you could not pump that much with any sort of pump. I mean, it is literally the only way to do it. Um, if, well, you know, you guys are probably familiar with those irrigation pumps that go on the back of a tractor. Yes. You know, with, <clears throat> and they've got essentially like a six inch propeller in that, uh, in that too. You get it primed and you just start, you know, pushing that water out with it. And, you know, this, well, what we're doing is we're making a pump out of the propeller on the boat. Right. And it, uh, uh, you take the uh, Sea Reaper's got two 450 horse engines on a 60 foot boat, and I think their props are 42 inches. They're for their uh, blowers. So in 20 minutes, they'll blow a hole 20 by 45 feet, 
six, seven, eight feet deep. What's the what's the most amount of dirt that you've had to move? And and, and then how how do you decide? Okay, so you got your metal detector, and as soon as it goes off, is that where you start? And do you just keep going down until you, or, or is there only, is it only eight feet that the metal detector is accurate? Oh, if if only we're if only we're that easy. Um, what we do, and we've moved up to ten feet of of sand, and the shallower the less water you're pushing through, the more sand you can move with our boat. Um, the blue water rose up on the, the Pulaski. It was in 110 feet of water. It's a 45-foot boat with big engines. They were moving sand in 110 feet of water. Wow. Um, but it takes a long time because you have to get everything. It takes a long time to get that much water moving. Well, when, you, uh, when you hit a ping, ahead. though, because, like, I've done a metal detector before, and I'm on a playground, and I get a fucking piece of foil or some shit is what I get <laughs> after I dig around and hey, save hey, a quarter. Hey. So do y'all do y'all dig up a lot of crap that's not valuable <laughs> with uh, – that's a yes. <laughs> yes. Lots of sunglasses. Um, because I see the stuff, the pictures you post, and I, and I love history, and a lot of them don't look like – it look like something I would bypass over because it's just barnacle encrusted, it looks like. Do you do, you, do yeah. you see stuff that looks like actually a gold or silver? As soon as you see it, you know. Oh, that's a, you know, a chalice or something. Or is it all car- Mel, barnacly Mel encrusted? Fisher will, Mel Fisher said to die his dying day. I'm sure gold shines forever. The only thing that you find that comes up that looks anything like it did when it went down is gold and something like bronze cannon. Some bronze cannons come up clean. Um, barnacles will encrust almost everything. The real barnacle uh, encrustations that you're seeing are uh, like a, if you drop an iron iron spike into the water, there's a lot of uh, uh, chemistry going on. Um, the... Uh, the salt water is trying to dissolve that spike. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, it will bond through some chemistry. You know, I, did, I had trouble staying awake in chem class. <laughs> through some chemistry. Let's you know, wave through some hand-waving. Yeah. Uh, it bonds to that, uh, that iron spike. Now, if you get lucky, you'll knock that encrusted object open and find coins that are are attached to that iron spike and those are the really good ones because they uh, the the galvanic corrosion has eaten the spike instead of the coin so you've got a sacrificial anode is what you've got um that uh that's and sometimes it's very difficult to figure out what you need to pick up and what you don't and that's a just has to do with the metal detector. Now, we cannot tell from the surface. We don't. The only thing we've got that'll detect anything from eight through eight three feet of sand is a magnetometer. What we do on the seventeen fifteen fleet, since it was basically run through a blender, is we look at a chart that has all of the old finds and all of the old holes. And you, you've got two choices. You can either hunt new ground or you could go in where other people have been 
and see if they if you can find what they missed. Uh, one is a high risk, high reward. The other is a medium risk, high reward. So, you know, where we found those uh, 45 coins the other day was old ground. And, you know, people have been in there for years, um, and they missed them. What we do is we'll, I look at a map, I look at the maps a lot. But I'll look at the map, and I've got places that, uh, I've seen magnetometer records where there's a, uh, an anomaly here or there. Uh, I pick places where people just haven't dug that ha- are surrounded by, by coins or artifacts being found. Um, we've got a guy right now, Mike Perna, who is, he found, uh, I think 11 silver coins and one nice big, uh, eight real Mexico. Um, he's down on a wreck that, He's been working on pretty much alone for the last uh, two or three years. And he finally dug that one hole. Uh, and you, what you do is you we anchor up to give you an idea. We pull out there with uh, our little 26-foot boat. You put three anchors out, two stern, one in the bow. This restrains, constrains the movement of the boat to the point where <clears throat> the prop wash lands in the same place. Mm-hmm. You have to hold it steady. It'd be like, uh, you know, if you're heating something up with a torch right. and you don't hold it steady, right. you're not going to get much done. So <clears throat> we have to hold the boat with three or four anchors. Then we uh, put the ladder down. Somebody gets in, pins the way we lower and pin the blower. Now, one of the things that pinning the blower does is you are no longer a powered boat. You are merely a barge afloat on the ocean because you have just removed your your propulsion source. Mm-hmm. Um, you've turned it into a pump instead of a driving force. So if you get in trouble, the only way you can get underway again is to pull that damn blower up and sometimes when you uh when the weather goes bad and you were you, know, you stayed a little too long at the fair it's pretty <clears throat> hectic trying to get everything done so you can get the hell off the shallow reef how long does that take but, on average 15 minutes 10 minutes yeah it's 15 minutes on a if uh, things are okay and it's just the end of the day uh, Six or seven if the crap is about to hit the fan. <laughs> but the six or seven seems like longer than yeah. the 15. Yeah. But uh, so we, we drop the blower. We uh, we blow a hole. Um, and you know, to give you an idea, that's going to be a, an indentation in the sand, kind of funnel-shaped, say 12 feet at the top and four feet at the bottom. We, uh, somebody goes down with a metal detector. We use aquapulse metal detectors. And when people say, oh, I've got one that it's much better than an aquapulse, I will tell you this, that I don't know of any boats on the Treasure Coast that don't use aquapulse. So that's just all I've got to say about who's, who's as best. <laughs> um, so 
So you go down there with your Aquapulse A1B or is it AQ1B uh, with an 8 or 10 inch coil and you start waving your uh, your metal detector uh, coil and as you you know you work in a particular every diver will work that hole in a particular fashion biggest thing is to make sure that you cover the whole thing the whole hole and uh, that you do a, a good job because a, a a gold coin does not make a big noise on a on a pulse induction detector what makes a great noise is the bottom of a beer can. We call them <laughs> we call them aluminum mosquitoes. And if you look at one for just a second, you realize it's the perfect de- deflector or uh, you know a reflection device for a radio wave, which is what a pulse induction actually shoots out an electromagnetic pulse. And uh, boy, will it find it. An aluminous, <laughs> aluminum escudo. Yeah. A friend of mine, as a matter of fact, over in the Bahamas was uh, just hunting around looking for, probably looking for an anchor or something. But he he moved a rock that was about as big as him, went and got lift bags and moved this rock and found a really, really nice beer can bottom. Oh, no. Uh, Took him about two and a half hours to recover oh. that bit of sea trash. <laughs> but so you detect the hole. Now it should take, say it takes eight, six, eight minutes to blow a hole. Uh, it should take the diver no more than six to ten minutes to detect the hole unless he's finding something. Mm-hmm. And the key to production is keep moving. Right, and if you've got somebody down there in a foot of visibility, and I've seen this uh, several times, and they they swim out of the hole and they can't see anything, and you'll just watch them go out there about twenty or thirty feet, and <clears throat> until this year we had no way to tell them they were in the wrong place. Now we have an underwater speaker, <laughs> and so you can tell hey. them, hey, get get where you yeah. need to go. Excuse me, if going after pizza. <laughs> um, so we, uh, you know, and in poor visibility, we'll drop a weight down at the bottom of the hole as soon as we can quit blowing with a with a line on it. And you often you have to go down with your hand on the line, find the hole, and uh, keep hold of the line as a reference for. You know, until the water clears up a little bit, it's uh, it's pretty much blackwater diving on these on the farthest north wrecks where the they're close to the inlet and the inlet kicks out some unclear water at low tide, um, and it drifts southward and right over the places we work. If you go farther south, the uh, visibility's better, but none of it's the Bahamas. You know, it's Florida water, right? 20, 30, 40 feet of visibility is pretty good until you get down to uh, Stewart or so. So what, what's the what's the biggest find you found? I have to say this this is uh, this forty or they have forty thousand bucks or so is the best one we've had. Um, my partner in eighty eight found uh, several thousand silver coins. Um, 
and uh, that's his best score. But for us in our boat, um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, unfortunately for myself, I don't have anybody else that can do what I do. Uh, I got a guy that can drive the boat. I got three, three divers and a deckhand that love to go. I don't have anybody that will fix the air conditioner on the Bertram. Yeah, or, you're having some trouble with that, I noticed. Yeah. Um, always hire a professional, even if it costs more. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. We've been fighting uh, with getting a friend of a friend to fix this. Um, and I know it sounds like a real wussy thing, but in a in a sport fish, what we do with that sport fish is we drag a magnetometer. We go north a mile or two, south, you know, we move over 50 feet, we go south a mile or two, we're going four and a half knots. <clears throat> I sit my chubby ass if I, if, if I can't find anybody, if I can find somebody to drive, I sit down in the salon, the cabin, and stare at a com- well, two computers and a side scan sonar for the whole trip. Uh-huh. <clears throat> if it's a ninety-five degree day, and I just it, you, I just can't do it. Can't, won't, don't want to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it makes me sick. I'm old. I'm fat. Um, and I just, uh, it's not where I want to choose to die. So we're going to get the air conditioner fixed and we're going to go dragon. But what you run into, and I, you know, I know this is, this is a tough thing I had to learn. Um, I grew up, you know, Greyhound farm is nothing different than a dairy farm or a, you know, a ranch. You work, you work every day. You try to do everything yourself that you can and you try to maximize your profit and minimize your expenditures to the point where you really try to do everything yourself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, for instance, uh, we blew up a turbocharger on a motor with 20 hours on it. Literally, this cheap ass turbocharger, pardon my French, this cheap ass turbocharger the four bolts that hold the hot side to the cold side, when they installed them, they used bolts that were too short. They only had three engaged threads, so as soon as we spooled it up pretty tight, the the turbo literally came in two, which, of course, took the innards of the leave the part that left, the, the intake side, the uh, the rotor and everything, pretty much disintegrated, I guess. But, uh, so here I am, the guy that built the motor wants to send it back for warranty. And I said, well, how long is that going to take? Well, generally 30 or 40 days. Oh, no. Well, I said, well, you know, we can't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have generally from now till, you know, from the 1st of June to the 1st of September is generally our season. Sometimes we start earlier. Sometimes we go later, but those are the ninety days that you can count on. Just because the well, weather's the weather's consistent. Yeah, you know it's uh, it's the doldrums. Um, we have to have one to two foot one or one to three foot seas. If it gets any bigger than three feet, you can't anchor these boats in real shallow. Right, and p- particularly 
when you drop that blower and all of a sudden your draft is six feet instead of two. Yeah. Um, so they, uh, the guy says, well, I don't know what I can, I can, I can't just put another turbo on it. So I gave, I paid him 1200 bucks to go to uh, South Florida and get me a turbocharger, um, from a reputable shop. And, uh, those costs, you know, you can buy a turbo for 600 on eBay and I can show you pictures of what happens to them. <laughs> uh, uh yeah, I bet those guys with the pulling tractors don't buy them from eBay. Yeah, no, probably uh, not. So, so how so, do, how do how do you go about getting a, a, a lease on a shipwreck? Well, if you were to okay, say you go. I want to make this best case scenario. Yeah, um, we get together. We buy Vince's Vince Janelle's big old sixty footer that's for sale. We sail out of here. We go off the North Carolina or South Carolina coast. Pick one. Uh, easiest thing to find right now is going to be something like uh, an old steamship, uh, paddle wheelers, that, that era. Um, there's been two or three of them found lately. But let's, you know, we go out there and we find it. Yep. So we find it. We identify the ship. We call a lawyer, show him our, hand him our evidence. He goes to an admiralty court and does what is called, he arrests the wreck. And getting a, if you're in international waters, getting the, an arrest on a wreck means that you can salvage it. Unless, of course, some country, come, you know, some country comes up and says, oh, that's one of our warships or that's a one of our government ships. And in that case, they don't ever relinquish title. Right. Um, which if you guys had six hours, we could start on that, but I'm going to drop that and go on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to be kind, try to keep everybody from falling asleep, but you get that admiralty and in international waters, you're golden. You can then proceed to salvage the wreck. Um, there might be, um, sometimes there are insured, ins insurance companies will come after you for part of it 200 years later. Um, it's, it's a fairly intense thing when you start talking about big amounts of, of coinage. Or in the case of some of those warships, you know, bullion that uh, has arrived here or there didn't arrive one time. Um, so international waters get an admiralty and, uh, you know, put on your diving hat mm -hmm. in state waters. It is not nearly as clear cut. Um, for instance, in Florida, you file to get a search permit, um, on a certain area. And then you have three or four years to do the, the remote sensing stuff, the magnetometer survey, the bottom profiler, which is nothing more than the bottom trace on your bottom machine on your fish finder, where it shows the kind of bottom you're over. Right. You know, you'll see that thicker line, and you get the little hard line, a little thin line when you're on a rocky bottom. Um, Sub-bottom profiler just drives the signal deeper into the bottom and shows you what's in there. Uh, so you do a bag survey, a sub-bottom pro profiler, 
and a size, a good size scan survey. And that'll show you what's on top of the bottom, what's under the bottom, and any big iron anomalies that are laying there. Um, a lot of times you'll find unexploded ordnance, you'll find all sorts of stuff. Barge pipe, that's a, often confused as a cannon, you know, dredge pipe. Mm -hmm. um, but you uh, get your search permit, your search and explore permit, and say you find a wreck like, oh, Bobby Pritchett's uh, global um, GME, Global Marine Exploration Company did. They found uh, a 1500s French shipwreck off the coast of uh, just north of Canaveral, including uh, three bronze cannons and a very famous monument. Um, the state then would ideally give you a salvage permit and you just go about your merry way. Uh -huh. What they did with them is they basically stabbed them in the back. They went, uh, told their colleagues, the archaeologists in Florida told their colleagues in, in France that, hey, look, we've, you know, these guys found your ship. You should file an admiralty claim and take it away from them. Mm which they did. Mm -hmm. um, so Bobby spent three and a half million dollars looking for that wreck and got sent home with, and if you, if they would pay the three and a half million they had in survey costs, Bobby wouldn't complain much at all. But what they did is they took his three and a half million, you know, the product, I guess you call that now a work product, right? Yeah. They took his work product that cost three and a half million dollars to produce and handed it to the Spanish, to the French, and said, "Here you go, kids." Right. You know, once he'd once he'd found what he was looking for. Yeah, um, he should be should have been allowed to um, to to dig that wreck and salvage that. You know, and with an eye towards doing the archaeology, um, it's a fascinating story. Uh, it's called there's a place called Fort Caroline. There's some. Huguenots, which were French Protestants, came over to uh, Florida to to get away from their religious persecution of the Catholic Church in France. And uh, they got here. The Spanish were already here. The uh, Spanish marched down, killed the first batch, and it's a funny story. It's a sad but funny story, but he killed the first batch. Then, uh, not long after, they sent another group over. The Indians could even told the Spaniards that there were some more of those uh, white guys down there. They came down and killed another hundred of them. Um, it's a little harsh in those days. Yes. Um, as a matter of fact, they got them to surrender, marched them over the dunes and killed them there. Then came back and got another 10 or 12 to and marched them over the dunes and killed them. And that's, they didn't even bother to take them back to St. Augustine. Wow. They just, it, it's a heck of a story. Yeah. I mean, it, but there's, uh, anyway, so that's, that's what actually happens. It's almost impossible to get a salvage permit in, this, in the state of Florida at this time. How, how much money's um, worth of stuff did they end up getting the French get out of that wreck? Or, and did they even salvage it? Well, here, the, the year, there you go. 
they did not. They have not set foot on it mm. since they uh, got title to it. Um, That's a travel. All, all that history and all that money is just sitting at the bottom of the ocean, and they know that it's there. Yeah, well, we got, you know Bobby knows where it's at. They went. They did go out there once and couldn't find it. Uh, the, <laughs> Fucking move. The state of Florida did. Yeah. It hadn't moved since 1565. I don't guess it's probably going anywhere. How, how deep is that water? But that is uh, in the 30s. It's not It's not deep. I can't believe um, there's not people free diving all over out there trying to find that shit just on their own. But you have to. But see, that's the thing. It's under the sediment. Right. Um, it's, not just sitting on the, you, it's not just sitting on the ocean floor. Not anymore, no. You know, and I'm sure I've never actually had anybody walk up and tell me i'm sure that there have been many guys diving out here for lobster that have gone home with gold coins yeah um in fact we were euphemistically called it golden lobster <laughs> uh, and <clears throat> then my thing is if you find a golden lobster just all i want to know is where you found it you stick it in your pocket and go home <laughs> i'm not going to be i'm not going to be the a policeman for the state but I would like to have that little bit of information that might yeah. might come in handy. What's the most? You've, um, what, what have you ever heard of someone finding with a metal detector on the beach in Florida? Anything worth a oh, lot? Oh, 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 yeah. Gary Drayton found a uh, an emerald and gold ring several years several years ago, and I don't know how many, but somewhere between several and quite a few. Um, Probably worth a quarter of a million. Holy shit. Um, Man, all I do is sweat yeah, on the beach. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I've got a friend that's, <clears throat> that uh, recently dug, he and his wife dug for six hours. You have, to, you have to start digging as soon as the tide goes out. And quit when the tide comes in because it's about to fill your big sand hole. But they're convinced that they've found uh, half a dozen cannons and the biggest part of a ship under the under the beach, right at the water line, wow. at the low tide line. Um, and I kept saying, he texted me something, and I said, man, if you want me to send some shovels, guys with shovels down there, just tell me, I can get you some help. <laughs> and I, you know, I've got I've got friends that that would go down and shovel with nothing, no no more in mind than just getting to see it. Um, if you, you know, you dig, actually dig up a ship in the, you know, under the beach, how cool would that be? Yeah, exactly. Um, awesome. But, you know, there's a guy, an old guy named Bob Spratley who lives, uh, up around St. Augustine and Bob is a metal detecting machine. He's probably 70 something. And he posts things that he finds. He found, found coins on the, on the beach or in the dunes that are 200 years too old to be there. You know, Spanish coins from the 1300s. Wow. Um, and, you know, the thing is, Columbus is not the first European to, to get to South America or the Caribbean islands or to the United States. They're just the first ones that got to go back. Right. Good point. You know, there are, I am absolutely certain that there have been many ships that made it 
that you know ended up in on this side of the the Atlantic, but they had a lot of trouble when until they found the Gulf Stream and whatever year they found the Gulf Stream uh, would have been in the 1600s, I think. Until they found that conveyor belt, which is essentially what it is, they had to fight the trade winds back from say when they were uh, when they were headquartered in Santa Domingo. They had to go around uh, the end of uh, Hispaniola and out into one of the, the most, to this day, one of the most dangerous dangerous places in uh, the Atlantic, Ramona Passage, and then fight their way into the the prevailing winds, which come from the north, east, northeast at that point, the trade winds, what they call them now. So they might only make two knots, um, 24 miles a day. Oof. Um, because they're beaten into the wind with a square rigged ship. Right. Now you you turn that thing around and you put it going north east, northwest, I'm sorry, northwest up the what they call the old Bahama Channel. You get over there towards uh south of Quesal and north of Cuba, and the Gulf Stream comes out of the Gulf of Mexico at two and a half to four and a half knots and it's going your way going back to Europe. So they would pick that up. They're in a better wind situation uh, because the wind is no longer blowing right in their face. And you've got that additional two and a half to four miles. Or, well, actually, it's probably like three to five miles an hour uh, that you're picking up from the current. That's a huge advantage yeah. and made things a lot easier. Um, and then it, you know, it goes offshore and offshore and then kind of, kind of dissipates, but still there's some current that goes all the way over to Ireland. So, um, so Columbus, basically he tapped into that and he got to go back. Well, no, Columbus was just dumb or tough enough to go beat back into the wind. Oh, that's um, how he got, he didn't, he didn't use the, no, he, he, he didn't, didn't use the Gulf Stream for a hundred years. Um, they did not, uh. You know, when they first got here, they landed on San Salvador, which is the easternmost um, Bahamian island. Then they got to, to looking farther south and found, uh, I suppose, the British virgins. But um, Puerto Rico is not settled until after Hispaniola, uh, for whatever reason. So Hispaniola, 10 years after after Columbus landed, had a pretty good-sized city in Santo Domingo there on the south coast. Um, uh, and I, I hate to say this, but you guys will appreciate it. When he uh, was asked to describe Hispaniola, he said it was an island full of thieves and whores. Uh, <laughs> And I have, you know, I have friends that still live there. I'm afraid it hasn't changed. Hadn't that changed a whole much. lot since since the 1400s. Not, Maybe it was no. in California. <laughs> well, it. Uh, yeah, that's, let's not go there. That, uh, <laughs> so if California is going to be Mexifornia fairly pretty fairly damn quick. Soon. Hey, uh, let me ask you. I was in Maine about seven, eight years ago, and I met a guy, and he was walking with a metal detector, and that's what he did. Every time after there was a big storm, he would go walk the beaches mm -hmm. and do it. 
And so I'm assuming in Florida, in that area there, every time after a big storm, you see a lot of metal detector people walking down the beach? Oh, God, yes. And and particularly, and these guys have gotten smart. There's a, there's a uh, website called, I think it's MHD Talk, uh, Metal Detecting Florida Beaches. And he talks, he goes every day. He talks to people all over the place. And uh, they even... They'll even judge how uh, a storm is coming in. If you if it comes in from the north or the north northeast, it cuts the beach better than it does if it comes from any other direction. And what you're looking for is for the winds to scour the sand down to you know two, three, four, five, six feet, and that's when you find coins on the beach. Um, yeah, we've all stood on the, on the beach and tie the tides coming in, say, and the waves lap around your feet and stand there for about a minute and realize that you're now seven inches shorter because you're sinking. Mm -hmm. Well, coins do the same thing as you stir that sand up, the coins just keep sinking. Um, they will sink until they get to a hard layer. Um, and, you know, you, we all know that you can have a hard layer of sand if it's got a little clay mixed in it. Yep. Um, so if it goes, and that's usually a black, a black sand. It looks black. So if it cuts down to that black sand, you can and usually do find coins. Um, and it's to the point that uh, Greg Bounds, Joel Ruth, and uh, several guys I know will go out there and sit in their vehicles until the, they'll get somebody to let them sit in their driveway. And after they, everybody else evacuates, <laughs> they'll go out there and camp out there in their trucks until the you know until the storm passes. Because they want to be the first way, first one on the beach, and it's not all. The, I always thought it was well. You just wanted to beat everybody else there, but that's not it. It's not all of it anyway. <clears throat> what else? Uh, what is Jonah, it? You don't. Well, want I'm to... getting there. Okay. I'm just. I, I take a breath. Uh, <laughs> You've been going. For, Martin, been going for an hour, Jonah so you Martin, might need a drink. I had one. Uh, Jonah Martinez is a really, really, really good metal detectorist, and. He watches the tides. Um, if if one tide's higher than the other, he'll be out there at a certain tide. But it that sand can come and go in a matter of hours. In one or two tide cycles, it'll just be all back to Brown's beach sand. So if you're not there when the cut's uncovered, if the storm winds, you know, if, the, if it changes it can just kick dirt right back over that black sand, cover those coins up, and you'll never know that they were ever exposed. Wow. And oh. Joel Ruth found 120, 120, 140 coins just laying on the beach, uh, laying on one of those black sand cuts. And Joel's kind of an, an interesting fellow. Uh, but he's putting them in his pockets, and he, you know, the... He's told me this story that we you know, 
the waves are crashing and he's trying to go in where the dune's been cut and he's doing this, you know, uh, side of the mountain walking. There's some big piling that's trying to batter him to death. And <laughs> he gets there and he's, there's just coins on the beach and he's picking up these coins and he's putting them in his pockets and he doesn't have a belt on. So he ends up, the, the, the climactic moment of the story is Joel has to go find a plant of some sort of limb, you know, strips some bark off or something to tie his pants up so he can get back to the car. It, uh, but he uh, he had a hell of a day. Yeah, no uh, shit. Greg, Greg Bounds uh, found a lot of treasure. He once found a uh, a bronze cannon with a couple of handfuls of gold and silver coins stuffed in it. So it was a big deal to find this, this little bronze rail gun about three and a half, four feet long. They took it to the, uh, to the laboratory where they, the conservation lab, and uh, they started cleaning it. They said, uh, wow, something in here. Oh, look there. Wow. There's a lot in here. And, uh, it went, from being uh, just a heck of a nice cannon to a heck of a nice day. <laughs> and to this day, those coins are sold. You know, they, the coins were eventually sold. A uh, number of them were. And I've seen certs that talk about the fact that this is one of the gold coins found in the can in the bronze cannon on uh, Corrigan's Beach. So, um, so will y'all, like, look at... at- <clears throat> excuse me, old uh, wives' tales and, and and kind of explore that as, as a possible, you know, wreck site? Or how do you, how do you oh, even absolutely. know something's there? Um, of course, you know, the, the ones we work on here are pretty well documented. The ones, say you go to the Bahamas, there's a gentleman uh, I've been told is paying uh, $500 or $1,000 for uh, people to give him Tell him about their wreck site. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I can't imagine that he's just collecting that information because he always wanted to know. <laughs> um, but you know, laws are funny in the Bahamas. Um, but yeah, um, there's a you know, everybody that says, uh, you know, my granddaddy found some coins on this beach or that beach. You have to. You know, you have to judge who you're talking to and how you know, Sebastian, which is widely known to be a quaint drinking village with a fishing problem. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you kind of look at who you're talking to right? and, and how many brain cells they may have pickled or not. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, the, everybody finds, if you go to the Dominican, uh, Say, say we want to go to the Dominican Republic without any prior knowledge. What you do is you go to the beach, and you go to the beach with uh, a goodly bit of local money, and you, people will offer to sell you shipwreck stuff, you know, coins or, or little pieces. Of, uh, uh, I've got a, a French... Uh, national seal where you'd, you would uh, put your embossed mark on your sealing wax for an envelope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got one from 1740 over there wow. that was bought off the beach in uh, 
the Dominican for well, not too much money. I'm trying to sell it. I don't really want to. <laughs> don't want to sell him. But I will say this: I paid fifty dollars for a a silver coin that turned out to be a clever forgery. Oh, um, wow. So I've got to average that out. It's it's really nice forgery, <laughs> um, but it still made me look like a dumbass. Um, somewhere, some Dominican guy is saying, hey, you know, we sold all that stuff. No, who to? Well, so some gringo called his buddy and said, hey, you want to buy this? I'll send you a picture. Oh, yeah, it looks like a coin to me. But Fake. You don't win them all. Um, but we found, you know, all sorts. We found camel's teeth. We found uh, mastodon teeth. Um, old, old horse's teeth out here. Um, everything from hand axes. You see, that's an, it's all part of the history of the, of the place. And it's, I'm holding in my hand at this moment a jadeite hand axe from South America that's about five inches long, highly polished green stone that was found on top of a ballast pile in a river. And there were two of them found on the ballast pile. And we have yet, recently I've kept it around, I've kept that one and its brother around. If I just, every once in a while, I'll just take them out and wonder why they ended up in the water lost on top of a shipwreck. Hmm. Um, and it was a small shipwreck, you know, like a 30 or 40 foot small boat. Um, and I, <clears throat> you want to hear my conjecture? It's kind of, I don't know that it's right, but it's kind of interesting. Yes. Um, if you were a Taino Indian and it was 1509 or something or 1521 and you saw a sailing vessel of Spanish manufacture. You would be seeing basically a wooden structure with a pole in the middle of it and a whole lot of rope and canvas. And I like to think on these two hand axes that if you can imagine that all the hard things that you have to do when you're trying to make your way in 15 in the 1500s as an Indian on those islands. One of the, one of the things that you don't have is cordage and you don't have cloth. Mm -hmm. So to me, the, the, the likely salvage, you know, the parts that they'd wish to salvage the most would be the ropes and the sails, right. the lines and the sails. Yeah. Because imagine the wealth that that would, that would, would be as far as it looked like to your village. If you had 2,000 feet of half-inch or three-quarter-inch hemp line, Yeah, um, you could do all sorts of stuff with it that no, no Taino had ever done before except by weaving uh, pieces of palm leaves or uh, vines together. Um, they, they certainly weren't, uh, didn't have cattle, so they weren't making... Uh, Riatas or anything, you know, leather ropes. So, now I think that I personally think that that's where how they got where they were. Somebody was diving down and trying to 
cut those lines off of that boat, and uh, they lost their little their hand axe. That's fascinating. That's in- um, interesting. That is. That's fascinating. Now, Bill, before we get off here, I got to ask you a question. Do you ever read Clive yes, Kessler? Do you read Do you read any Clive Kessler books? I've read every one. I have too. He's a great author. <laughs> but I've also read every Louis Lamore ever published. I've never read a Louis Lamore book in my life. My God, man! I, I'm not into the cowboy Louis stuff. Louis Lamore and uh, Elmer Kelton, great authors. But here's what I liked about Louis, and what I liked about Clive is they set their novels in places that existed. And so if you go to, you know, one of Clive's more exotic destinations, the fountain that that they fell into or ran across is still there. It's there. Um, He doesn't make up his locations. And that was what I always admired about Louis Lamarck. He wrote about a spring. There was a spring there. Um, And one of the, I just have real trouble with inaccurate fiction. Uh, in <laughs> fact, I do. And I'm, you know, it's kind of this weird thing, but I read a lot. And uh, I have uh, three, three different people that uh, I do some technical stuff uh, editing for on their novels just because... Well, of course, I get a free $6 book with an autograph. <laughs> but I also make sure that they present treasure hunting or, or for that matter, just boats and that kind of thing in, the, in an accurate manner. So to, to me, when, you, when somebody says, you know, the diesel engine was turning at 7,000 RPM, this is a recent one, I, I have real trouble going any farther Right, because any diesel, any diesel engine I know of, um, you'd be dodging parts at about fifty five hundred. See, we're uh, that way with hunting shows, or hunting, mm-hmm. or, or hunting in movies. You, oh, you'll you'll see, out. Jeff, and you're right though. Like every little detail after that, you're like, well, fuck, you know, it kind of it, it it diminishes it. But we're yeah, the exact same way. It, it, exactly. It 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 you know you have to suspend your disbelief, particularly with fiction. But you don't have to, you know, you don't have to swallow that, oh, I'd rather throw up than watch this feeling. Right. Um, I spent uh, a good number of years hunting ducks in Kansas up on uh, John Redmond Reservoir. It, uh, if you ever get a chance and look at Duck Hunter's Refuge, that uh, that forum, uh-huh. I, I, the, the one good thing I did on my way out of hunting ducks because you can't hunt ducks in florida i thought about it and discovered that you get six out of ten of your ducks because the gators get the other four (laughs) (laughs) i like i like retrievers yeah i like chesapeake bay retrievers Uh but i don't think a chesapeake even the chesapeake couldn't lift an alligator no 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 so i gave it up but i we had lost three guys up on John Redmond that were in a little boat, a guy, his brother, and uh, one of his son. And I started a thread that I've got to, I would be remiss if I did not point this out. I started a thread, and this is not about me, this is about what the thread's about. Um, on uh, 
on there on the boats and blinds section, and it talks about how to manage uh, big water and bad weather. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I would suggest if you know for folks that that spend some time in, bad, in the, this crappy weather that ducks seem to move in, and geese, but. Um, if you're going to get out there on a boat, try to be real safe. Yeah. Um, and my personal favorite is, uh, generally when you're, when you're in that kind of water, the slower you go, the faster you get home. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's true with working cows and a lot of other stuff too. You kind of got to think about it, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, Bill, I would like yeah, to. The other one is, uh, faster an animal goes, the dumber they get. Uh, or intelligence is directly adverse to ground speed. Um, But uh, there's two or three things. There's a lot of really good stuff that was brought up in that thread. There's a quarter of a million views. And it's one of the... I'm pretty proud of the number of people who have said it helped them and made them a little safer. And some of them actually got them home alive. One of the other things is if things really go to crap, Run the boat aground and tie it to a tree. Very, um, very wise. You'll die on the water, but it's harder to kill you if you're you know, on land and can uh, and can make a fire or get to the road or you know, kick the door in some poor old lady's house open <laughs> to get yourself warm. But get out, you know, get off the water, um, and it, it's much more. It's not as you know. It's not as testosterone labeled. Say, and then you know we fought our way across the lake in five foot seas. <laughs> I'm a, I'm pretty good at running a boat, and uh, I have let my I had my two kids in a sixteen foot uh, John boat with a sixty horse jet on it, and the wind went wrong on us on John Redmond, and I had them. Uh, with inflated life jackets covered up underneath a tarp in the front of the boat and uh, coasted along as close as I could get to the dam face. It was getting pretty real. Mm -hmm. I just, the the closer I, I knew the closer I ran to that dam face, the less time we'd be in the water. Right. Um, And that's when I became fairly safety minded. Yeah. Uh, took a while to get my butt muscles unclenched from that one. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't take but about you know one of those experiences, and and it you you're prepared after that. Yeah, if you're if you're not, you're stupid. That's right. And I believe that Darwin was right about a couple of things, and survival of the fittest is a pretty good way to to sort the herd. Yep, it's very, um, very very effective. Unfortunately, there's some. What we don't remember, and particularly on the ocean, is some poor bastard the Coast Guard's got to come after you. It's true. Um, You know, those people who drive their cars off in floodwaters and have to be rescued by some gentleman with large balls and a long (laughs) rope. Um, You know, and they don't really appreciate those guys, but you can drown in... Fast water is just as fast or faster than you can drown in deep water. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, but 
I can go, but it's it's in uh, Duck Hunter's Refuge. It's uh, um, I think I that's uh, either under Bill Black or Ropes Fish. I'm a, I'm but a, it's uh, I'm gonna look at big it. water, bad weather. It's uh, I'd appreciate it. It's uh, all I ask is uh, if you get a chance, take a look at it and try to be a little safer out there. You don't even have to send me any duck breasts. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you what, Bill. I appreciate yeah. you being on here, and we'd like to have you. If you'd like to come up and come hunting this year, come up and hunt with us, and we can talk about Clive Custer a little bit and sit down and have some stories. Well, I'd love to. At, uh, or <clears throat> get real, if you really run out of gas, I'm always here. Hey, we, we'd, we'd love to have <laughs> you back on. This was uh, in the old time. Interesting, interesting stuff. Well, you have a great day, Bill, and we sure appreciate you being on here. Okay, fellas, it's been fun. Hey, Take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Interesting guy. Every time I think of treasure hunting, I think of being under the water and coming up and a bunch of guys with gold teeth trying to steal your shit from you. Yeah. Because that's what I think of from the... And he thinks my Aunt Cheryl's hot. <laughs> Dad, you, you can go ahead and put your headphones on now that you're here. Go ahead. Well, I got to get all this. I used to catch a tire with jackrabbits with this guy, Wade Mayfield, if he was in the jackrabbit business or he, racing dogs. Well, he told us when he first got on here that he grew up at the Greyhound farm right there outside of Chanute. Yeah. His parents bought that. And he went to, he graduated with Aunt Cheryl and the year before Uncle Steve. Yeah, they're younger than me. Well, I know, yes, we know that. Moses, we think, is younger yeah, than you, Dad. Yeah, interesting podcast for sure. Very interesting guy. I, mean, I appreciate him being on here, and I, a million I, places we could have. Well, we could have taken went that for hours. Oh yeah, for easily, sure. easily. Interesting guy, and I anybody out there that likes to read Clive Cluster books are awesome. Start with the very first one, which is I think Raise the Titanic. Maybe was the first one. I can't remember what it was, or Going to Atlantis, or somebody. He's freaking awesome books. I think he's read about a hundred of them. I think I've read every one of them. All right, thank you. God bless y'all. Have a great day.